This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. It's time for the New Yorker. Since 1925, it's been the world's source for the finest in art and fiction, sophisticated reviews, humor, commentary, and news. Stay tuned for this week's Culture Blast from the one and only New Yorker, right now on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is the New Yorker, and I'm your reader, Dale, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I'll be reading from The New Yorker, dated January 29th, 2024. And now, I'll begin with the talk of the town. Comment, Trials and the Trail. As a way of launching the race for the Republican presidential nomination, the Iowa and New Hampshire contests offer a neat thematic juxtaposition in the Midwest candidates fight for the social conservative vote, in New England for the support of small business owners, Last week, after winning the Iowa caucus by 30 points, Donald Trump complicated the story by ping-ponging between New Hampshire and a Manhattan courtroom, where a jury is considering the amount of damages he now owes E. Jean Carroll for defaming her by saying that she lied when she accused him of rape. Here's my schedule for the next four or five days, Trump told a crowd in Atkinson, New Hampshire, on Tuesday evening. I come here, I meet with great groups in New Hampshire. I then get on the plane late at night when it's snowing and freezing out. Wonderful. And the pilot says, sir, it's going to be tough. And I get there early in the morning. I go to a Biden witch hunt. Then I come here in the afternoon. Trump's trials, in which he faces 91 felony counts, have often been described as a potential distraction for the candidate. But Trump, who complained in Atkinson that he has been indicted more times than Al Capone, did not sound distracted or gloomy about the prospect of spending that time in court. Quite the opposite. Trump wasn't required to appear at the Carroll trial at all, but he found it politically advantageous to be there, not so much menacing the courtroom as Dennis the menacing it. On Tuesday, when potential jurors were asked whether they believed that the 2020 election had been stolen, three raised their hands. None was selected, and Trump raised his hand, too. On Wednesday, Carroll's lawyer said that Trump was disrupting the proceedings by muttering loudly enough for jurors to hear him say that the trial was a con job and a witch hunt. The judge threatened to throw him out. I'd love that, Trump replied. But as he has been pointing out on the campaign trail, the indictments and trials have had a way of strengthening his support among Republicans. Trump's first presidential campaign in 2016 was launched in an atmosphere of displacement and rage. This one is being conducted in a posture of relentless victimhood. Maybe that's a more effective position than at first it sounds. One way to interpret it is that the trials have imposed a deadline and he is in a race to beat it, to consolidate the support of the party before his most serious cases get underway, so that he can campaign against the charges as partisan fictions. This may explain his curiously subdued performance after his win in Iowa, which derailed the campaign of Ron DeSantis, his only real challenger on the right. Speaking at the Hotel Fort Des Moines, Trump praised both DeSantis and Nikki Haley and repeatedly urged the party to come together. 
In recent campaign appearances, Trump has tended to stand alone on the stage and deliver a harangue, but in Des Moines, he was flanked by his sons Eric and Don Jr. and devoted part of his meandering victory speech to the sports preferences and tall height of his youngest son, Barron. Donald Trump, political conciliator and family man? It would be a real turn. But organizing his campaign around the idea that the trials are a democratic setup means that Trump has to get the whole party behind him, even those members who have long found him immoral, vindictive, or extreme. Trump isn't really running as a populist insurgent this time. He's acting like something closer to a conventional leader of the Republican Party, though it's a party, of course, that he has completely remade. His reemergence as its frontrunner in this election, after he tried to overturn the results of the last one, has required both capitulations within the party, from Mitch McConnell's failure to push GOP senators to convict Trump during his second impeachment trial, to Marco Rubio's and Ted Cruz's endorsements last week of the candidate they once denounced, and mistakes made outside it. The Biden Justice Justice Department's year-long slow roll of its January 6th investigation out of a wariness to appear partisan, as the Washington Post put it, now looks a little naive. The trouble for Biden isn't just that Trump remains the central figure in U.S. politics. It's also that, to some voters, Biden's inability to move his predecessor offstage just demonstrates the ineffectualness of his administration. Trump's unity stance may be superficial. Not even a full day after his Iowa win, he was back to mocking DeSantis and Haley, but it seems that it can still have an effect. The religious conservatives who helped defeat him in Iowa in 2016 largely supported him this time. At Davos, mainstream business leaders, including Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, found ways to praise him. On Friday, Senator Tim Scott, who has been viewed as an approachable moderate, endorsed Trump over Haley, his fellow South Carolinian. Chris Christie was the last Republican contender to criticize Trump over January 6th, and the former president probably expects that if he keeps attacking judges and prosecutors and pushing grandiose claims of immunity, such as that, absent an impeachment conviction, he wouldn't be criminally liable even if, as president, he had ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a rival. Most of the remaining holdouts in the party will, if not support him, shuffle their feet and look the other way. Is it clever or deluded for Trump to see his trials as a political opportunity? He has already been found liable for sexual abuse in the Carroll case, and he still faces charges of financial fraud, taking documents marked classified from the White House and refusing to give them back, and conspiring to overturn a federal election, not exactly a winning roster. On the icy campaign trail this month, Trump's presence has been something short of overwhelming. His events are held mostly in hotel ballrooms and country clubs, rather than the arenas of yore. He says little that is new. The crowds tend to thin noticeably as he rambles on. They chuckle when he says, crooked Joe Biden. But there is nothing like the cascading chants of lock her up directed at Hillary Clinton in 2016. Even Trump's Iowa landslide consisted of just 56,000 votes, and half of Republicans wanted something else. 
Lately, Trump has been working into his stump speech an attack on Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, who indicted him for conspiring to pressure Georgia officials to invalidate his loss in the state in 2020, and whom one of his co-defendants has accused of an alleged conflict of interest. For Trump, the attraction of the trials in an election characterized so far by general indifference may be quite basic. They give him something to talk about. And that article was written by Benjamin Wallace Wells. The next Talk of the Town article, Visiting Dignitary, Skater Love. A couple of diehard skaters were undeterred by the slushy weather in the Andy Kessler State Park near the Henry Hudson Parkway. They weren't together and each moved in his own loose orbit trying different tricks and carving around puddles. One was a teenager dressed for the cold beanie, parka, and pillowy snowboard gloves. The other, a lanky middle-aged man shivering in jeans and a hoodie, was Tony Hawk. My schedule so jammed that I didn't want to waste time going back to the hotel for warmer clothes, Hawk said, rubbing his hands together. That might have been a mistake. At 55, Hawk is a philanthropist and entrepreneur, the titular character in a billion-dollar video game franchise, and the most iconic skateboarder ever to have lived. He'd flown in from California the night before and spent the morning at City Hall lobbying for public skate parks. That evening, he was being honored at a gala, and he would fly home to San Diego the next day to record an episode of his podcast, Hawk vs. Wolf. This was his only window for skating. My first trip to the city was in the mid-'80s on a Bones Brigade tour, he said. Back then, there was nowhere to skate, so we just stopped at CBGB to buy T-shirts and got back on the road. He dropped into a half-pipe. Everything's changed for the better, he said. This city cares about skaters. Hawk and his wife, Catherine, first visited New York together in 2010. They'd arrived late and headed straight for Blue Ribbon Brassier. When they walked in, a diner in bottle-thick glasses slid back his chair to block their path. Hawk recognized the man immediately. I turned to Catherine and go, that's Mark Mothersbaugh, he recalled, and she looked at the others at his table and said, and that's Devo. Last summer, Hawk's teenage daughter attended theater camp in the city and the family rented a place on the Lower East Side. Hawk was also finishing what would become his farewell video part, the skateboarding equivalent of a writer's final novel. The part tapes you leave behind, required more than four years to complete. For one thing, Hawk took a hiatus from filming while he underwent two major surgeries. The first procedure occurred after he miscalculated his landing on an aerial and broke his femur. I tried getting up, but my leg didn't come with me. It was pointing in the wrong direction. The second surgery was less than a year later, the consequence of returning to skating before his femur had healed. A documentary about his recovery is currently being shopped around Hollywood. After I'd recovered enough to be creative, I remembered I'd been working on a part, he said. Once I committed to finishing, I realized it was going to be more difficult and exhausting than I'd ever imagined. I didn't set out for this to be my final project, but here we are. That term video part used to make sense, by the way, Hawks said. It was your three or four minutes in an hour-long video with other skaters. Full-length skate videos are a lost art form because of costs and logistics. So now the part is the whole. 
Part of what, though? The internet, I guess. As a cold wind whooshed through the park, Hark Hawk flowed from the half-pipe to the street section and back. He improvised routes in order to hit every obstacle, as if collecting tokens in a video game. Despite his injury, he looked ageless on his board. When he snapped a lofty ollie over an embankment, the teenager finally clocked who'd been skating with him. He started patting his pockets for his phone. I feel humbled and, I don't know, liberated, Hawk said about skating after the release of tapes. It doesn't feel like I have some Herculean goal to reach every session. I used to get obsessed and like angry. I'd get this intense tunnel vision and people have told me after the fact that I've made them uncomfortable when we skated together. Now it can kind of feel like I'm coasting and I've never liked coasting, but I'm trying to embrace it. I'm thinking of it as a new trick. It's fun. The teenager skated up, dragging his toe to slow down while casually extending his glove for a fist bump. Then he asked for a selfie. I met you here over the summer, he said. Good to see you again, Hawk said with practice courtesy. You've been skating much? Yeah, but this is actually only my second time at this park, he said. Light was fading, but there was still enough Hawk put there was still enough. Hawk put down his board and pushed toward the embankment. The teenager followed. It's a rad park for sure, Hawk said. Oh, definitely, the kid said. Every time I skate here, you've been here too. And that article was written by Brett Anthony Johnston. Turning now to an article, Annals of Politics, titled Ruling Class Rules, How to Thrive in the Power Elite While Declaring It's Your Enemy. And this article was written by Evan Osnos. As a young man in the 1980s, Tucker Swanson McNear Carlson set out to claim his stake in the establishment. His access to money and influence started at home. His stepmother, Patricia, was an heir to the Swanson frozen food fortune. His father, Dick, was a California TV anchor who became a Washington fixture after a stint in the Reagan administration. For fortunate clans like the Carlsons, it was a wonderful time to borrow the title of a volume of contemporaneous portraits of the life of America's elite, which included the Cabot sailing off Boston's North Shore and Barry Goldwater on the range in Arizona. As a teenager, Carlson attended St. George's School beside the ocean in Rhode Island, one of 16 American prep schools that the sociologist E. Digby Baltzell described as differentiating the upper classes from the rest of the population. Carlson dated and later married the headmaster's daughter. His college applications were rejected, but the headmaster exerted influence at his own alma mater, Trinity College, and Carlson was admitted. He did not excel there. He went on to earn what he described as a string of D's, after college, he applied to the CIA, and when he was rejected there, too, his father offered some rueful advice. You should consider journalism. They'll take anybody. Soon, Carlson was writing for the Policy Review, a periodical published by the Heritage Foundation, followed by the Weekly Standard, Esquire, and New York, while also becoming the youngest anchor on CNN. But in 2005, Carlson's CNN show was canceled, and after a period of wandering, including a failed program on MSNBC, a cha-cha on Dancing with the Stars, in an effort to build a right-wing answer to the times, 
he found success at Fox News. There, he developed a dark new mantra. American decline is the story of an incompetent ruling class, he told his audience in 2020. They squandered all of it in exchange for short-term profits, bigger vacation homes, cheaper household help. It was an audacious message from a man with homes in Maine and Florida, a reported income of $10 million a year, and Washington roots so deep that the Mayflower Hotel honored his standing order for a bespoke off-menu salad, iceberg heavy on the bacon. But Carlson framed his advantages as proof of credibility, he told an interviewer. I've always lived around people who are wielding authority around the ruling class. His origins helped give fringe ideas, such as the conspiracy theory that George Soros is trying to replace Americans with migrants, the ring of inside truth. His eventual firing from Fox only fortified his persona as a dissonant member of the power elite. In declaring war on the upper class that made him, Carlson joined a long, volatile lineage of combatants against the elite— From the beginning, the United States has had a vexed relationship to distinctions of status, a byproduct of what Trollope called our fable of equality. Americans tend to root for the adjective, elite, Navy SEALs, and resent the noun, the Georgetown elite. What's different these days is that so many of the attacks come from inside the palace walls. Senator Josh Hawley, a Missouri Republican, grew up comfortably. His father was a bank president, graduated from Stanford and from Yale Law School, taught at a British school for gifted boys, and met his wife when they both clerked for Chief Justice John Roberts. But he ignores these credentials when he criticizes what he calls the people at the top of our society. As a religious conservative, he believes that his values leave him disadvantaged, writing in 2019, our cultural elites look down on the plain virtues of patriotism and self-sacrifice. The Florida congressman, Matt Gates, the son of a wealthy health care entrepreneur who for years served as the head of the state Senate, called his rival Kevin McCarthy the most elite fundraiser in the history of the Republican caucus. This was instantly understood to be an insult. Even as the ruling class has become a preoccupation of the right, it remains remains a concern on the left. Senator Bernie Sanders had such an abundant audience for his latest book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, that his royalties nearly matched his salary for representing Vermont. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who entered Congress denouncing the tippy-top of the 1%, has become a target of activists further to the left who accuse her of turning into an establishment liberal. Critiques of the elite now emanate from so many angles that it's difficult to know who remains to be critiqued. Nobody in American public life has a more unsettled relationship to status than Donald Trump. For years, as he elbowed his way into Manhattan and Palm Beach, He touted the exclusivity of his golf courses, the most elite in the country, and hotels, the city's most elite property, and he promoted Trump University with the message, I want you to become part of an elite wealth-building team that works under my direction. He later agreed to a $25 million settlement with former students who described Trump U as a scam. None of his elite talk endeared him to what he called the tastemakers, who dismissed him as a boorish trespasser. 
Even after he turned his Mar-a-Lago estate into a private club, he still resented those who had sniffed at him telling an interviewer, in a tone rarely employed after the age of 12, I have a better club than them. When Trump ran for president, he adopted the expected criticism of media elites, political elites, and elites who only want to raise more money for global corporations. But after he took office, he didn't seem to want to do away with the idea of an elite. He just wanted his own people to be on top. During a 2017 speech in Arizona, he told the crowd, you know what? I think we're the elites. The term is now invoked so ubiquitously that it can seem to crumble through our fingers. As George Orwell wrote about a frequent accusation of the 1940s, the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. But if our elites are undesirable, what would a better elite look like? What exactly are elites for? At the turn of the 20th century, the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, living as a wealthy recluse in Switzerland, was at work on some of the earliest statistical research into what we now call income inequality. By his count, 20% of the population of Italy owned about 80% of the land. He found a similar ratio in another more eccentric area— 20% of the pea pods in his garden yielded 80% of the peas. Pareto took to describing these imbalances as a natural law known as the 80-20 rule. Pareto wanted a pithy term for his concept, but ruling class was out. It had been popularized by his arch-rival, the scholar Gratano Mosca. Instead, he adopted elite, a French word derived from the Latin eligere, which means to choose. Pareto intended it to be neither a pejorative nor a compliment. He believed that there were elite scholars, elite shoeshiners, and elite thieves. Under capitalism, they would tend to be plutocrats. Under socialism, they would be bureaucrats. His formulations suggest several varieties of elite influence. There is the cultural power wielded by scholars, think tanks and talkers, the administrative power radiating from the White House and the Politburo, the coercive power resident in the police and the military. Security forces constitute the strongest branch of elites in much of the world, but the weakest in America. Looming over them is economic power, which has occupied a fluctuating position in the West, worshipped except when it is scorned. In ancient Athens, wealthy citizens supported choruses, schools, and temples on pain of being sentenced to exile or death. From the late Middle Ages, philosophers proposed that instead of banishing the rich, society should exploit their bounty. The Tuscan humanist Poggio Bracciolini argued in On Avarice that in times of public need, the prosperous elite could be made to serve as a private barn of money. This idea prevailed for centuries. During the American bank crisis of 1907, a group of tycoons that included John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan put up personal funds to bail out the financial markets. But that crisis also marked the end of an era. It spurred the creation of the Federal Reserve, which relieved the economic elite of an onus they had carried since medieval times, according to Guido Alfani, the author of As Gods Among Men, A New History of Wealth in the West. Freed of that responsibility, the rich of the early 20th century became 
both more entrenched and more extraneous, attracting criticism from regulators, muckrakers, and the growing ranks of organized labor. Alfani notes a pattern that unfolds repeatedly and systematically across history. When economic elites become ingrown, impenetrable, and insensitive to the plight of the masses, societies tend to become unstable. To prevent that kind of instability, Pareto believed, the upper echelons of power must stay open to, a new, to new contestants in a process that he called the circulation of elites. Hugo Dershon, a historian of political thought at the University of Nottingham, told me Pareto's metaphor was the river. If it is not moving anymore and it's becoming crystallized, then you are more likely to have a revolt because of forces rising up. That risk of a stagnant, crystallized ruling class inspired the sociologist C. Wright Mills, who explored the American implications in his 1956 book, The Power Elite. As the term gained currency in English, many publications, though not all, dropped the accent from the E. The elites accept one another, understand one another, marry one another, tend to work and to think, if not together, at least alike, he wrote. Once ensconced, they rarely lost power, he warned. They simply swapped seats, moving among industry, academia, media, and public office. Mills laid the foundation for the idea of a military-industrial complex, which Dwight Eisenhower popularized in a 1961 speech. According to some historians, Eisenhower wanted to add scientific or congressional to that complex, but it was nixed. An invective was born. Scholars on the left used it against conservatives who opposed the rise of black and women's studies. Conservatives, taping, tapping into the decline of public trust in authority since Vietnam and Watergate, turned the government, the media, Wall Street, and the Ivy League into the swamp, the fake news, the globalists, and the ivory tower. The elite became whoever is peering down on us, judging us, manipulating us. A century after Pareto laid down the concept, he is rarely read, but Branko Milanovic, a former economist at the World Bank, believes that this is a mistake. In his book, Visions of Inequality, a history of thinking on the distribution of wealth, Milanovic notes that Pareto's era strongly resembles current capitalist societies— Pareto was writing at a time when vast, entrenched inequality in Europe and America fueled calls for radical upheaval. He was initially sympathetic to demands for change, but he came to see socialist leaders as a new elite and was courted by the fascists. He ran unsuccessfully for office. His wife ran off with the cook, and eventually he lived as a hermit in a villa with dozens of cats. His disappointments may have darkened his frame of mind, Milanovic writes, but they unlocked his insights. History is the graveyard of elites, Pareto wrote, in perhaps his most oft-quoted and oft-misunderstood observation. What he was predicting was not an end to the elite, but rather its constant regeneration. These days, the feuding hierarchies of capital, authenticity, virtue, victimhood generate separate core of recruits for the ruling class. Who would fare better in the ongoing cultural contest of who's the elite? John Fetterman or Ron DeSantis? Ibram X. Kendi or Britney Spears? Chris Rock or Kid Rock? 
even identifying who is eligible for the elite has grown more complicated. Conservatives venerate the building of wealth and political power, but see themselves as persecuted by intellectuals and bureaucrats. DeSantis, in his memoir, The Courage to be Free, defines elites as those who control the federal bureaucracy, lobby shops on K streets, big business, corporate media, big tech companies, and universities. But in a feat of rhetorical gerrymandering, he excludes Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, arguing that although Thomas occupies the commanding heights of society, he rejects the group's ideology, tastes, and attitudes. Thomas, for his part, focuses his ire on academia, lambasting know-it-all elites and declaring that he prefers Walmart parking lots to the beaches, though he evidently makes exceptions for certain beaches. Last year, ProPublica reported that for decades, Thomas has taken undisclosed luxury vacations paid for by the Republican donor Harlan Crow, including tropical sojourns on Crow's superyacht and visits to the secretive California retreat Bohemian Grove, where Thomas befriended the Koch brothers. Another tycoon helped fund the 40-foot RV in which Thomas visits those Walmart parking lots. Some of the combatants' definitions of elite are almost perfectly opposed. In recent writings, Bernie Sanders blasted the billionaire class, the corporate elites, and the wealthy campaign donors. Mark Andreessen, the billionaire venture capitalist and campaign donor, enumerated enemy ideas that block the advance of technology, including the nihilistic wish, wish so trendy among our elites for fewer people, less energy, and more suffering and death. Amid the competing accusations, you may find yourself quietly wondering, am I in the ruling class? For Americans, that tends to be a touchy question. When Paul Fussell, a historian and a social critic, was writing his 1983 satire, Class, A Guide Through the American Status System, he noticed that people he mentioned it to responded as if he had said, I am working on a book urging the beating to death of baby whales using the dead bodies of baby seals. Fussell, undeterred, cataloged the markers of the upper class frequent house guests, implying as it does plenty of spare bedrooms to lodge them in and no anxiety about making them happy, tardiness, proles arrive punctually, and as in the case of the young Tucker Carlson, rumpled bow ties. If neatly tied, centered, and balanced, the effect is middle class, Fussell wrote. He composed lists, including one that delineated the only six things that can be made of black leather without causing class damage to the owner. Belts, shoes, handbags, gloves, camera cases, and dog leashes. He ended the book with a system for evaluating the class balance of the goods on display in your house. New oriental rug or carpet, subtract two each. Worn oriental rug or carpet, add five each. Forty years after Fussell's class, its most striking feature is his prescience. Before we could see the full contours of our new gilded age, Fussell sensed that the middle class was sinking, pulled down by unemployment, a static economy, and lowered productivity. A generation whose parents had clambered out of the working class was amusing itself to distraction in a world of proliferating screens and cheap consumption. Prole drift, Fussell called it. 
The class divide was widening once more, and the greatest gap was the one separating Americans who could protect themselves with money from those who could not. Fusel quoted the working class father of a man killed in Vietnam. You bet your GD dollar I'm bitter. It's people like us who give up our sons for the country. These days, some of the signifiers have changed. There are fewer takers for a tastefully worn rug. In New York City, the press has documented the rise of private kitchen staff, rotating teams of nannies and in home laundresses who will devote half an hour to ironing a single shirt. For those days when a foray outside the home becomes unavoidable, the Amman Hotel offers the private refuge of a members only club, which charges a $200,000 initiation fee and $15,000 in annual dues. Yet the deepest drive is not for stuff, but for the social rank that stuff conveys. The musician Moby, who sold 12 million copies of his album Play, Once said that he kept courting success in the music business not to make more money, but to keep being invited to parties. In the 2022 book Status and Culture, the journalist W. David Marks argues that we are hardwired to pursue status because it delivers a steady accretion of esteem, benefit, and deference. In ancient Rome, elites were permitted to recline at dinner while children sat and slaves stood. More recently, the champion golfer Lee Trevino remarked When I was a rookie, I told jokes and no one laughed. After I began winning tournaments, I told the same jokes and all of a sudden people thought they were funny. Status can be frustratingly ephemeral. As you get closer to the top of a pyramid, the steps get crowded. Just ask, ask the senators who peer longingly down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Oval Office, knowing that they are contestants in a zero sum game. For every person who goes up, Marx writes, someone must go down. Jockeying in a hierarchy, no matter how lofty, occasionally swerves toward the physical. Not long before becoming president, Joe Biden offered to take Trump out behind the gym and beat him senseless. Trump, asserting that he had a much better body, insisted he'd win. In a Senate hearing last fall, Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma told an invited witness, the president of the Teamsters Union, if you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Their taunts barely registered above the din of other elite standoffs in recent years Kanye West versus Taylor Swift, Chrissy Teigen versus Allison Roman, Lauren Boebert versus Marjorie Taylor Greene. Each dispute has its own esoteric stakes, but taken together, they make up a perpetual American undercard, feeding our cravings for entertainment. Peter Turkin, an emeritus professor at the University of Connecticut, calls this an age of intra elite conflict. He explains it as a game of musical chairs. Each year, we get fresh graduates from Stanford and the Ivy League, bored hedge, hun- hedge fund executives, restless tycoons, all angling for seats. Year by year, their numbers accumulate, but the chairs do not, and the losers become frustrated elite aspirants. Eventually, one of them will cheat by faking a kid's college resume, trading on an inside tip, or trying to overthrow an election. Others will catch on and begin to wonder if they're the last suckers in the bunch. Things fall apart. That's the pattern that Turkin explores in End Times. Elites, counter elites, and the path of political disintegration. 
Trained as a theoretical biologist, he now mines a vast historical data set called CrisisDB for insights into how societies encounter chaos. The crux of his findings, a nation that funnels too much money and opportunity upward, gets so top-heavy that it can tip over. In the dispassionate tone of a scientist assessing an ant colony, Turkin writes, In one-sixth of the cases, elite groups were targeted for extermination. The probability of ruler assassination was 40%. In 15th century England, he notes, a long spell of prosperity minted more nobles than society could absorb, and they took to brawling over land and power. The losers were beheaded on muddy battlefields. During the three grisly decades of the War of the Roses, three-quarters of England's elites were killed or driven out by downward social mobility, an estimate that scholars reach by studying the declining imports of French wine. Eventually, Turkin writes, the most violent were killed off, while the rest realized the futility of prolonging the struggles and settled down to peaceful, if not glamorous, lives. In America's case, history holds two examples with wildly different outcomes. In the early 19th century, old-line Southern elites who profited from slavery and from exports of cotton faced competition from Northern elites who made their money in mining, railroads, and steel. They battled first in politics. Some ran for office, others funded candidates, but the elites proliferated faster than politics could accommodate them. Between 1800 and 1850, the number of America's millionaires soared from half a dozen to roughly a hundred. During the Civil War, the North's tycoons prospered, the South's went into decline, and the country suffered incalculable damage. Half a century later, America was riven once more. In the 1920s, suspected anarchists bombed Wall Street, killing 30 people. Coal miners in West Virginia mounted the largest insurrection since the Civil War. But this time, American elites, some of whom feared a Bolshevik revolution, consented to reform to allow, in effect, greater public reliance on those private barns of money. Under Franklin D. Roosevelt, Groton, Harvard, the U.S. raised taxes, took steps to protect unions, and established a minimum wage. The costs, Turkin writes, were borne by the American ruling class. Between 1925 and 1950, the number of American millionaires fell from 1,600 to fewer than 900. Between the 1930s and the 1970s, a period that scholars call the Great Compression, economic inequality narrowed except among black Americans who were largely excluded from those gains. But by the 1980s, the Great Compression was over. As the rich grew richer than ever, they sought to turn their money into political power, spending on politics soared. The 2016 Republican presidential primary involves 17 contestants, the largest field in modern history. Turkin calls it a bizarre spectacle of an elite aspirant game reaching its logical culmination. It was a lineup of former governors, sitting senators, a former CEO, a neurosurgeon, the offspring of political and real estate dynasties, all competing to convince voters that they despise the elite. Their performances of solidarity with the masses would have impressed the Castros. When Trump reached the White House, he ushered in allies with similar credentials. Wilbur Ross, Yale, Stephen Munchen, Yale, Steve Bannon, Harvard Business, 
Mike Pompeo, Harvard Law, Jared Kushner, Harvard. Though Bannon, the chief strategist, had earned his fortune at Goldman Sachs and in Hollywood, he billed himself as an outsider and sounded every bit the disheveled count from the Middle Ages. I want to bring everything crashing down, he liked to say, and destroy all of today's establishment. Turkin ends his book with a sobering vision. Using data to model scenarios for the future, he concludes, At some point during the 2020s, the model predicts instability becomes so high that it starts cutting down the elite numbers. He likens the present time to the run-up to the Civil War. America could still relearn the lessons of the Great Compression, one of the exceptional hopeful cases, and act to prevent a top-heavy society from toppling. When that has happened in history, elites eventually become became alarmed by incessant violence and disorder, he writes, and we are not there yet. In the summer of 2023, the tussling between two noted American elites entered the realm of burlesque. For years, Elon Musk and the Facebook co-founder Mark Zuckerberg had privately grumbled about each other. Zuckerberg yearned for the innovator's cred that Musk enjoyed, and Musk lamented, initially, that he was not as wealthy as Zuckerberg. In public, Musk has mocked Zuckerberg's understanding of AI as limited and said that Facebook gives me the willies. Last June, after Musk, the owner of Twitter, purged its staff and plunged it into turmoil, Zuckerberg's company announced plans for a sanely run alternative. Musk responded by proposing a cage match, and Zuckerberg, who had been training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, replied on Instagram, send me location. Soon, Musk and Zuck, worth a combined $335 billion, were posing for sweaty gym photos. The Italian government discussed hosting the fight at the Colosseum and tech bros divided into rival fandoms. Eventually, Musk put off the fight. He acknowledged that he was out of shape, and Zook declared that it was time to move on. But even interrupted, the billionaire cage match showcased some of the rivalries and insecurities already at work in the next 80-20 society. The gentry of new technologies have displaced the industrial and media barons of an earlier age, but the new hierarchies are still in flux. In Silicon Valley, it's common to hear the prediction that artificial intelligence will yield a world of two broad classes, those who tell the AI what to do and those whom the AI tells what to do. Technology won't spare us a ruling class, and in any case, it's hard to envision a thriving society in which no one is allowed to aspire to status. But instead of continuing to exhaust the meaning of the elite, we would be better off targeting what we really resent, inequality, immobility, intolerance, and attacking the barriers that block the circulation of elites. Left undisturbed, the most powerful among us will take steps to stay in place, a pattern that sociologists call the iron law of oligarchy. Near the end of the Roman Empire in the 4th century A.D., Inequality had become so entrenched that a Roman senator could earn 120,000 pieces of gold a year, while a farmer earned five. The fall of Rome took 500 years, but as the distinguished historian Ramsay McMullen wrote, it could be compressed into three words, fewer have more. Democracy is meant to ensure that the elite continue to circulate, But no democracy can function well if people are unwilling to lose power, 
if a generation of leaders on both the right and the left becomes so entrenched that it ages into gerontocracy, if one of two major parties denies the arithmetic of elections, if a cohort of the ruling class loses status that it once enjoyed and sets out to salvage it. Which brings us back to Tucker Carlson. When he tells the story of America's elites, he often scorns them as mediocre and stupid. But he frames his own failures, the strings pulled on his behalf, the rejected applications, the canceled shows, as jaunty diversions on the path to success. To be fair, we are all bad at estimating our own abilities. In a study of college professors, 94% rated themselves above average. But Carlson is not just overlooking his history of falling short. He is trying to rebrand it as righteousness. In his broadcasts, first on Fox and now on X, he specializes in giving voice to fellow frustrated elite aspirants, former General Michael Flynn, former Representative Tulsi Gabbard, and of course, former President Trump, the last of whom is toying with naming Carlson as his running mate. I would because he's got great common sense, he said in November. Together, these counter-elites conjure a pervasive conspiracy of immigrants, experts, journalists, and the FBI. It's a narrative of vengeful vengeful self-pity, a pining for the wonderful times gone by. Carlson's old friends in the ruling class occasionally wonder how much of his shtick he really believes and how much he simply grieves for having lost the game of musical chairs to faster, shrewder, more capable elites. The latter, at least, would make his desperation understandable. He is being replaced. Our final article under Personal History, titled Goodyear, On Tires, Toenails, and Walks with an Old Friend, and this was written by David Sedaris. It was a midsummer afternoon, and my old friend Don and I were walking from an unair-conditioned Nepalese restaurant to our hotel in the dull, flat town of Montrose, Colorado. The sun seemed larger than usual and brighter. It felt as if we were under a broiler. The road we were on was six lanes wide, or maybe eight. There was no sidewalk, so we were pressed right up against the curb, being passed by flatulent motorcycles, their riders helmetless, and 18-wheel trucks that were equally loud, but at least generated a breeze. One of the many good things about Dawn is that she never complains about walking, never says, you told me it was only another few blocks an hour ago, never moans that her feet are tired or so swollen that her shoes no longer fit. The farther the better, that's our motto. Our record is 43 miles in a single day, 91,000 steps according to our Fitbits. Where did you do this, people ask when I boast about it. It's a question that baffles me. If someone told me he'd eaten 75 corn dogs in one sitting, my response wouldn't be, where, but why not 76 corn dogs? Why not 80? We always talk about breaking our record, going for 100,000 steps, but now I worry that we might be too old, and how weird is that? I was 19 when we met in the front hall of our dormitory at Kent State, and Don was a year younger. We know each other's siblings, and before they all died, we knew each other's parents as well. Don's father was a jazz musician who fell to his death in a skydiving accident when he was 50. Her mother was a former flight attendant who doted on her two sons but constantly picked at her daughter's appearance, though I'll never understand why. Don dresses like a Swiss person. 
That is to say, she looks at all times as if she is headed to the airport where she will fly business class. Everything matches or is color coordinated, usually in earth tones. When I tell people that her wedding dress was brown, she corrects me, saying, Not brown, driftwood, which is brown. She makes all her own clothes, dawn save for some socks and underwear, though she could likely turn those out as well. Of everyone I know, she'd fare best if forced to live in a secluded cabin or 15th century Europe. She just has that look about her, wiry and no nonsense. Doesn't own any makeup, smells like a cardboard box. Dawn grows her hair out, then chops it off to donate it to cancer patients. What remains is naturally straw-colored, not a touch of gray, and easy to imagine beneath a bonnet or a snood. She hasn't used an ATM since 1990 when the machine ate her card, and as for a phone, forget it. Can't make calls, but can make yarn, paper, ink, and some kind of non-dairy ice cream that tastes like fallen leaves. Dawn travels with me quite often when I'm on tour. She likes working the line, writing people's names on post-it notes, and sticking them to the title pages of the books to be signed. Who is that woman, someone will invariably ask, implying that Dawn has been strict or unfriendly. Once in Uruguay, I forced her to take a test that would determine whether she was autistic. I'd had my suspicions, but became certain after we spent a Halloween together, and I watched her hand miniature staplers and homemade granola bars to the trick-or-treaters who came to her door. Kids don't want crap like that, I told her, as one after another stomped off into the dark. Sure they do, she said. I mean, it's the kind of stuff I'd want. Yes, well, you're strange. To my great surprise, Dawn turned out not to be autistic. What puts people off is most likely her body language. The way she crosses her arms over her chest, for example, makes her look impatient. Also, also, her voice can be kind of flat. Totally flat, actually, if she doesn't know you. What, she says when I point it out. I'm friendly. I'm always friendly. During the height of the pandemic, a woman spit on Dawn. We were in the grocery store, and I hadn't done anything to her, she told me. I guess she didn't like that I had a mask on. One of Dawn's lungs collapsed when she was in her late 50s, so she was super cautious about COVID, kept her face covered long after everyone else had returned to normal. We were in Chicago together at O'Hare in the spring of 2022 when I told her she needed to take it off. But, she said, let it go, I told her everyone else has. I felt like a director coercing an actress to unhook her bra for a sex scene. Come on, I said, you can do this. Start by just lowering it to your chin. She took off her mask and then, of course, immediately got COVID. A bad case, too. All my fault, but she's never held it against me. Fifteen months later, walking along the busy highway in Montrose, Colorado, we came upon three 18-wheelers parked on a dusty lot. The doors of one were open, and inside were stacks of new-smelling tires. If you had a year, do you think you could eat one of those? I asked, pausing to wipe the dirt and sweat off my forehead with a bandana I'd been carrying. If you had to, I mean. Don looked inside the truck. A tire? Sure, if it didn't kill me. First thing I do is cut it into 365 pieces, then divide each of those into pill-sized portions. I'd eat throughout the day. It was exactly what I would do. I wonder what percentage of people would put it off to the last minute, I said. Can you imagine? Time is almost up. You have a knife in one hand, a fork in the other, and are staring down an untouched radial tire thinking, F. 
A convertible roared by, and we could briefly hear the music the driver was playing, a song that neither of us would ever voluntarily listen to. That's what my brother would do. Put it off, I told her. Then there'd be people who'd wait until the last minute and beg you to help them. It's the ant and the grasshopper, when you really think about it. And though I'm not proposing this, if you had to cull the population, I think this would be a pretty good way to do it. Those who eat their tire by the deadline stay. Those who put it off and make excuses die. That seems fair, Don said, adding that kids could be given bicycle tires. Our hotel in Montrose was so close to the airport we could hear car doors slamming as passengers were dropped off at the terminal. Love you. Call us when you get there. It was a boxy chain place, meat locker cold and smelling of chlorine. But the young woman at the front desk, who had a streak of blue in her hair and wore enough makeup for three people her size, was efficient and welcoming. While checking in earlier that afternoon, we'd learned that she'd soon be taking the exam for her cosmetology license. Her study book was beside her when we came in after lunch, so we asked her to throw us a few test questions. Okay, she said and glanced down, squinting. How long does it take for a lost toenail to grow back? A year, Don said quickly, the way a contestant on a game show might, adding that she and I lose them all the time. The young woman took a half step back. Why? Because we walk so much, I told her. Every other month, I'll pull off a sock, feel something hard inside of it, and realize... You've lost a toenail, Don said. Sometimes I'll tape mine back on, she continued. It gives the little membrane underneath more protection as it grows. This was something that I hadn't known. You tape your toenails back on? She looked down at her feet. Well, sure, but not all of them. The young woman's next question had to do with pH balance. Don got that answer right, too, <clears throat> though it may have been luck. I mean, I was. it was multiple choice. We were in Montrose because we had to fly out very early the next morning, and so it seemed smarter to stay near the airport than in Telluride, where my reading would take place. Because I never got my license, and Don is admittedly a hopelessly bad driver, a man named Kevin had been hired to chauffeur us. He was 60, I guessed, and had graying hair gathered into a foot-long ponytail. When Kevin was young, he and his brothers would set traps and catch muskrats and beavers, mountain lions as well. Then we'd skin them out and sell the pelts for clothes and school supplies, he told us. Dawn, sitting beside me in the back seat, mending a shirt that I had torn, adjusted her glasses. Killing mountain lions, I don't like that one bit. I didn't like it either, but what do I know of life in the West of growing up poor on the back of a horse? Then, too, I'm just not confrontational. If someone told me he kept a dozen teenage girls locked in his basement as sex slaves, I'd likely ask, does it cost a lot to feed them? Not Don, though. The other night we were in Beaver Creek, I said to Kevin, hoping to change the subject. Have you been? They have a store there that sells wine and spirits, and it's called Beaver Liquors. No joke. As he laughed, we came upon a mean-looking town where we were told True Grit had been filmed. The hills surrounding it were scrub-covered and severe, crawling with snakes. I suspected. A sign in front of a church read, It's not hot as hell. A bit farther along, the land was greener, and Kevin pointed out Ralph Lorenz's nearly 17,000-acre double RL ranch. Then he showed us a spot where, a few nights earlier, he'd come upon a bear and her cub crossing the road. They was taking their sweet time, too, he said. I stopped right yonder and waited for them to reach the other side. The land changed again an hour or so later as we neared Telluride. Now there were steep mountains with red cliffs visible through the aspens. 
pronghorns get up there than kick dang rocks down on you, Kevin said. I had been on the fence about him, but now felt certain that given a year, he would have not only eaten his tire, but helped someone else eat theirs. Because of its film festival, I'd thought Telluride might be good size, but in fact it's dinky, only two and a half thousand year-round residents. We had arrived early and had an hour to wander about before returning for sound check. Know someone for as long as I've known Dawn, and you figure you've got pretty much everything covered, at least in your past. So it surprised me during our walk to learn that when she was seven, she befriended a man of 26 who lived not far from her family in Marion, Ohio. I don't remember where we met. He was single, and I'd go to his house after school. Maybe we'd play board games or go on bike rides, depending on the weather. He was a lot of fun. We had discovered Telluride's outdoor pool and were looking at the swimmers through the chain-link fence. What did your parents think, I asked. For a long time, they didn't know, Don said, that my dad found out. After the two of them finally met, he came to me saying, You didn't mention that your friend Howard is deaf. I was like, really? I just thought he was quiet. Quiet is letting the other person do most of the talking, I told her. Deaf is letting them do all of it. That aside, I love that no one made a big stink about it. Can you imagine that happening now? The man would be arrested along with the parents. Everyone would go to jail except for the kid who'd be in mandatory counseling for the rest of her life. It's startling to age and hear yourself talking like this. When I was young, a child could have a lonely adult bachelor as a friend. He had a lot of javelins in his house, Don recalled. It turned out he'd thrown them at the 64 Olympics. That makes it even better, I said, brushing some cottonwood fluff from the back of her dress, then leaving my hand to rest for a moment on her shoulder. When people ask how I know Dawn, I sometimes say, she was my girlfriend my second year of college. I always worry, though, that it makes her look dumb, especially if I'm at the theater after a reading and am wearing a sports coat that, for all intents and purposes, is a gown. She was my girlfriend, though. Held my hand as someone in our dorm basement pierced my ear. Wrapped her arms around my waist as we sledded down the campus's one decent hill. Stayed up nights to help me with sculpture projects. Everyone knew us as a couple. We were in love. Back at Kent State, loving Dawn meant hating myself for being gay, for being too cowardly to admit it, and ultimately for hurting her the way I did. I will forever be grateful that she forgave me and that we can be in love again. How's your little wife? Hugh will ask after she and I have spent time together. Does Dawn's husband, Matt, behave this way? I often wonder. The thing is that she and I knew each other first, before Hugh and Matt, before Reagan and AIDS, before computers and Fox News and run DMC. My feelings toward her are proprietary. Though currently on loan to her husband and stepchildren in the city of Red Wing, Minnesota, Dawn is mine, and although we've never discussed it, I'm pretty sure I'm hers as well. I know because I can feel it. When we're traveling and when we're apart, in high-altitude Telluride and sea-level Singapore, in Japan and the United Arab Emirates, in Argentina and Iowa and all the places we'd go just so we can walk our toenails off and be together. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Dale with The New Yorker. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.